We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You are listening to KC Sports Network, the number one podcast network for today's Kansas City sports fans. With former players from your favorite teams, informed perspectives, and former insiders, this is the place for you. KC Sports Network is proudly presented by Emprise Bank, your partner in Possible. All right, hey, welcome back in to another episode of the Royals Farm Report podcast. My name is Alex Duvall. I am joined by my co-host Josh Kaiser tonight. We've got a very special guest coming coming in to join us right after we hear a word from Kansas City Strength and Conditioning. From the beginning, we knew right away that we wanted to do strength conditioning and a throwing program for the baseball and softball community. It wasn't something we were trying to back into or all of a sudden learn. We knew we were really good at these coaching these skills from the get-go. And the fact that we're in the same business and the employees are all on the same page, you know, we can write a program based off of what a kid needs, not just getting him stronger or faster from a general sense. It's what does this kid need? On the pitching end, we can say, hey, this kid needs such and such. He needs to do this or that better. A lot of times it turns out it's not something that needs to be fixed in the baseball cage or on the throwing mound. It actually needs to be fixed in the weight room. All right, big thanks to KCSC once again for their support of the Royals Farm Report podcast this year. We are now joined by John Coxis. John is the minor league baseball TV play-by-play analyst, the sound of the Columbia Fireflies there in Columbia, South Carolina, the Royals' low-A affiliate. John, we've been we've been following your work forever. This is the first time I think we've gotten you on the podcast, so thanks for joining us. I know... It's dire times because low A minor league baseball is done for the year and the Cleveland Browns are playing again, which I know is is not great for your well-being. But how are we doing? I know I, I know the, the games have stopped, but obviously your job hasn't stopped just yet. So how's everything going, man? Yeah, it's going great. And in fact, today it was back at the office after a, a day off yesterday and we were kind of going through some strategic plans for next year and stuff. We've got a couple of big releases coming up in the next week or two. So, uh, you know, it's almost immediately right back to the grindstone, just in a different way. It's not so much the seven o'clock until 11 o'clock stuff as is the nine to five to stuff right now. But thanks for having me on the pod guys. Uh, definitely nice to finally be able to chat with you in person rather than just sending DMs. Absolutely. John, there's nobody that watches more Columbia Fireflies baseball than you. 
There's nobody who's more plugged into the team from an outsider's perspective than you are. There's nobody that is more qualified to join the show tonight and give their opinions of the Firefly season than you are. So I am pumped up to get to talk to you about it. Let's start off with the unfortunate realities of the first half of that season. It looked to me like that was a team that was in way over their head from Jump Street. The Fireflies really struggled out of the gate. And one thing that Josh and I talked about preseason about the Fireflies was there's not a lot of former college talent that's going to be on that team. It was a lot of high school draftees. It was a lot of international signees. Really, the only returning player that was in the middle of that lineup anchoring it down every day, there was two, was Omar Hernandez, a light-hitting catcher, and Daryl Collins, a guy who made some adjustments to his swing and was pretty clearly not the same player he was last year. Otherwise, it was a ton of new faces, and, and the Fireflies really struggled, I think, from a lack of – with. They struggled, I think, because of a lack of experience. What did you see early on? Because that team had talent, but they they pretty clearly weren't ready to roll maybe when opening day came around. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head right there. It was just a young and inexperienced team, and that's part of being in a small market, right? It's affected from day one in, in your program, right? You can't play the way the Yankees play in minor league baseball if you're the Kansas City Royals, if you're the Milwaukee Brewers, if you're the Cleveland Guardians, if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates. So you're going to be signing and and drafting a lot of guys who are high ceiling and and young because you can teach them, right? That's what Drew Saylor is there for. That's what C.J. Eldred was there for. You know, like all those guys, those guys are there to develop that talent so that way you can get – four or five years out of them, and then probably enter a trade pool. That's the unfortunate reality of the way that the game is currently set up. Uh, So this year, in on opening day in the Carolina League, the Fireflies' average age was like 20 and a half years old, and the league average age was 23 years old. So that's like saying you're playing for KU, you're playing for USC, and you send out a lineup of freshmen, and you expect them to beat Vanderbilt right? It's not going to happen very frequently. And that's why it was 18 and 48 across those first couple of months. Uh, So one thing that really spotlit that start, um, or at least the first 66 games was the emergence of Rivertown. 15th round draft pick, but a four-year college guy. Went to a premier JUCO in LSU and transfers to Dallas Baptist. What was fun here in South Carolina was he played in the South Carolina regional and lit up the world a couple miles down the road at USC. So a lot of people on opening day knew of the name river town from that three day series or whatever. And they said, man, this kid's going to be fun to watch. And Oh boy, was he actually incredibly fun to watch. Uh, He went from day one, Tony Pena jr. Saying this kid's going to be your fourth outfielder. He'll play twice a week to, First taking some games away from, I think it was Yaswell De Los Santos that started in right field initially. And then he was taking some games away from Daryl Collins. And then he was taking games away from Eric Pena. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's on a franchise long on base streak. He's got the, I think it was the third highest on base percentage in the league. Good company too. Marcelo Meyer had the highest on base percentage in the league. He's an uber prospect, right? This kid was a 15th round draft pick. Uh, So certainly nice to see him explode. And the other guy that was nice to see explode was a guy that we knew had the stuff, 
because he spent half of last season there was Louis Dravila. Avila doesn't necessarily get the credit he deserves. He's the same age as Shane Panzini, right? Both of them do not turn 21 until next year. Uh, Avila pitched 115 innings this year, had 97 strikeouts, and had a league average ERA in the fourth. So consistently spins the ball very well, will not strike out a million guys with the fastball because he only throws 92, 93, but he's probably going to put on 20 or 30 more pounds before his contract's up. And that probably means a couple more ticks on the fastball. The thing about, I liked about Avila was his ground ball rate was, coming into the year was really, really good. And we kind of flashed him a little bit for, yeah. uh, for that, just to kind of keep an eye on him, just because that ground ball rate was really good last year. I remember talking to Alex about that. And, and Rivertown was a guy that we talked about, like coming out of the draft last year. Everybody was just everybody around here, I should say, was just pumped because he had an awesome name. So it was really, yeah. <laughs> it was really good to not only take away uh, at bats from you know maybe those fringe guys that might be outside of our top seventy five, but then start going after Eric Pena at bats because he struggles. And and and, and that's it was another awesome thing to see. So I'm glad you guys brought that. You brought that up for sure. And speaking of Eric Pena, what was the at least at least the first couple of weeks he had a couple home runs. One was a big old walk off uh, home run. Opening day, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. we got jacked up about around here. So remember, remember riding high on that one for about a week, and then it just kind of fell off. So what what was it kind of like being around those guys? Maybe talking to some of those guys about some of those struggles, and how does that kind of uh, reflect on your job as the play by play? Yeah, well, I think to start off. The thing that everyone remembers from that opening night game is, of course, Eric Pena's three-run walk-off home run. That thing went crazy. People were talking about it for weeks. The thing that was more impressive was when he tied the game in the seventh inning with an opposite field single. Yep. And that's what he didn't do enough of, and that's the reason why he struggled. Uh, him, Carter Jensen until July. Remember, Jensen was a 200 or below hitter every single month until July. What changed? He started hitting the ball the opposite way. I know you said Collins made some adjustments to his swing, and yes, he did notice that correctly, but the big thing that they were looking for Collins to do that he finally started doing this year uh, after getting a little pole happy at the end of last year was he started slapping the ball again. You know, he's Ichiro Suzuki at best, right? When Daryl Collins is performing best, he's setting the table for the middle of the lineup. He's not a guy that's going to hit 25 home runs. He's not a guy that's going to consistently pull the ball over someone's head. So you want him to get on base. And by the end of his tenure with the Fireflies, he was back to a point where he was getting on base 35, 40% of the time because he's walking a couple of times every single game. He's got one of the premier eyes that I've seen from this Royals system. And then, uh, you know, he's hitting the ball opposite field, singles, doubles. And by the way, in his last two weeks, three triples showing off the foot speed despite having a leg injury earlier in the season. So uh, to see those types of things from Collins is super positive uh, about the struggles that you asked about for Pena. It's because he didn't make that adjustment that both Jensen and Collins made. He just kept getting more and more pull happy. Now they were doing tons of things with his swing the entire season. It started off and his base was so wide. I remember opening day, looking at it and you see the back foot on the, on the white chalk at the back. And the front foot, front foot open stance still on the front of the chalk. And you're like, Man, the kid's not Yao Ming, right? Like he's tall, but he, he shouldn't be striding that far. It takes a really long time for him to coil. So that's generating a lot of swings and misses because he's got to start swinging the second the guy lets go. Um, they, they stood him up a little bit more and positive things started happening. And 
when they placed him on the development list at the end of the year, he had hit 267 across his last 15 games. So he was starting to shorten up the swing a little bit. And then they threw him on the development list. I think it was, hey, we want you to end the season on a high note just for the mentality. He's going to play in fall ball, right? So that's important. Like you give him a couple of weeks off and hopefully next year, I imagine he's one of those guys that will be back in Columbia next year. I'm hoping that next year he's going to start off hot and he'll quickly move to quad cities because he's a good kid. He's intelligent and he's got the tools, but like so many other players, when you're drafting high ceiling guys, it's, can they realize what to do with their tools? Cause having them will shine bright for one or two moments a year to know what to do with them. That, that's how you develop. You got off to a slow start and we, and we talked about some of those, some of the reasons why, then there were there were two distinct waves of reinforcements mm-hmm. that came in and really turned things around for the Firefly season. I want to talk to you about the first one, which was basically that young group of pitchers, Ben Coderna, Frank Mazzucato, Shane Panzini. And we can talk about them in a second, but I think the most underrated move that the Royals made to reinforce the Fireflies this past summer was bringing up Daniel Vasquez to hold it down at shortstop. Now, Danny didn't have the best offensive season he was also 18 years old and I think put in a position where they knew he wasn't going to be the best hitter in the lineup what he did though is anchor an infield defense that really struggled and and I don't mean to be overly critical of, of teenagers but Wilman Candelario struggled so bad at shortstop for Columbia they sent him to Arizona and moved him to the outfield so that's clearly something that is is no longer going to be a thing but Daniel Vasquez coming with those pitchers, anchoring down an infield defense to give everybody a little more confidence, I think was the most underrated move they made all year because the, the Fireflies didn't really have a shortstop until Danny Vasquez came around. I'm so happy you said that because that's literally in my notes. Uh, I know you guys DM me and you said three pitchers and stuff, and I wanted to point out there were like eight moves made over the course of a week and a half, and that was the game changer because <laughs> I remember for a point in the first half, the Fireflies had something, it was like 15 more errors than any other team in baseball. Like 120 teams playing, and you've got 15 more errors than anyone else. And that's not saying that there's not defensive talent. And Candy was starting to play in the outfield a little bit in Columbia. I think he had three or four games in the outfield uh, in those corners before they sent him down to Arizona. But when guys are feeling pressured and challenged, and Candelario is making three errors a game, and Enrique Valdez is throwing the ball away from third base sometimes, those mistakes pile up. And then because everyone's 18 or 19 on that infield and remember your first baseman who played a heck of a season, Guillermo Quintana had never played first base before opening day, even in spring training, he was still catching. So for him to step up and be as good as he was, was fantastic, but there was a noticeable difference when Felix Familia was anchoring first base. And it's just having someone who had some type of experience before and if you'll remember, Valdez played third base for the first time this year, too. Last year, it was second base and shortstop. So that throw was something he wasn't accustomed to, right? It was just opening day. Everyone was trying something new. People had different middle infield pairings they had never seen before, right? Daniel Vasquez and Lisandro Rodriguez is the pairing that's been the case through the DSL, through the ACL. And they didn't get together again until I think there were 35 games remaining. So to finally get those two back together and watch some of the plays they made, there were some incredible double plays in that month where both of them were healthy. 
that was fantastic to watch. And it made me think Michael Garcia and Tyler Tolbert were in the middle infield again. And, you know, say what you will about Tyler Tolbert's bat and stuff like that. Sometimes he's the fastest kid I've ever seen. And the kid has a phenomenal glove. He doesn't get enough credit for his defense. So him and Michael Garcia, I've been in minor league baseball since 2017, might be the best middle infield pairing that I have seen. And I'll, I'll tell you first and foremost, O'Neill Cruz might be the most special player I've seen. So not necessarily a Kansas City Royal, but uh, a middle infielder that was outshined like crazy by Michael Garcia. So uh, yeah, out a bit, O'Neill Cruz. Yeah, now Cruz <laughs> missiles were awesome, and it was uh, he was an enigma because he didn't speak any English until his second season in West Virginia. So like no one knew anything about this kid when he came from the Dodgers. <laughs> That's outstanding. I um, I love watching some of these kids who, and, and it's funny because they're not like Umberto Artiago is a good example, and I know he was in the Royal System Low A long before they were in Colombia. Yeah. But sometimes there's there's guys who have who have really no shot of being a big league regular because of the bat, but then they go down and they are so like. I think Omar Hernandez is a good example. We can talk about Omar a little bit when we start talking about these pitchers because Omar Hernandez is a defensive wizard. I don't know that I've seen three or four catchers in a ball, low A or high A, better than he is defensively. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Omar's bat may limit his future in some capacity, but he is so good defensively at a position that is valued 90% for their defense that he's got a shot. So let's talk about Omar really quick, and then we'll get to the pitchers. Omar Hernandez, in his second round with Columbia last year, is still one of the youngest kids in the league, Mm -hmm. is still very inexperienced in terms of his career, and yet looks like Yadier Molina in the way that he handles a young pitching staff. Like, you can see it even in the minor league broadcasts, which are you guys are limited by the number of cameras you have, and -hmm. you can still see – like there was, there was one moment in particular I'll never forget. Frank Mazzucato's on the mound. He's struggling with his command. Omar mm-hmm. Hernandez comes out there. And as a teacher, I, I, I kind of know this look because there's, there's a few different looks kids give you. It's the whatever, man, go away look. It's the, man, I'm really trying to understand you and I can't. And it's the help me, please like do something for me because I'm failing. And Frank Mazzucato gave Omar Hernandez this look. And it was that help me look. He was like, dude, you've got to help me. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what the problem is. And Omar Hernandez kind of looks at Mazzucato and goes like, dude, relax. Like we got this, no problem. And then God knows what they said to each other. Omar Hernandez goes back behind the plate. And then Frank Mazzucato strikes out the next two batters. It was incredible. And it was just like, Frank Mazzucato isn't that much younger than Omar Hernandez in the, in the look he gave him, it was so clear how much respect he had for Hernandez that it, it made an impact on me. What's wild is Hernandez and Jensen are the exact opposite form of leaders. Hernandez is very soft-spoken. He is very calm. Like he, he will never raise his voice. He just chats with you. Right. Jensen, very showy, very loud. Some would say abrasive, but He's that guy that, like, you need. If you're playing poorly as a team and he gets in and does something, he's going to get everyone riled up and completely boistered and ready to go for the rest of that game. And so that's that's the type of leader Jensen is. 
Whereas Hernandez is, he's not going to do anything flashy or crazy. He's just going to control his controls. Um, his back got a lot better this year, actually. And last year, I can't remember how many times I said it, but I felt like down the line, I was saying it every single time that Omar was behind the dish. He had never played more than 30 games in a year. He was 19 years old and he started, I think it was 80 games behind the dish for Columbia and he played in nearly 95 games. So he was hitting a buck 90 and each month his splits were getting lower in terms of average on base percentage, et cetera. That's the guy who was tired this year. He showed up day one and looked completely cut up. I mean, he probably gained 15 to 20 pounds that didn't get updated on the Royals under anything. I'm not sure what the actual weight would be, but he certainly was heavier this year and it made a difference, particularly late in the season. I don't know if Omar starts here next year or if he starts in quad cities, but you know, hitting 235 as a catcher down the stretch isn't bad. I mean, at the major league level, the Royals are gifted right now, right? They've got Salvi. They've got, in my opinion, the best young prospect in MJ Melendez out of that group. Uh, and I just remember watching him for two years when I was on the other side of the South Atlantic League. And, you know, Nick Prado struggled when I saw him in the South Atlantic League. But um, MJ Melendez was always just a force to be reckoned with. And I, I always had tremendous respect for him when he came to the plate or when he was behind the dish. So uh, when you've got those two guys, it's tough because Kale Emshoff is really good, right? Porter, he's really good. Um, we're watching so many guys get moved out. The Royals might have, I want to be careful when I say this because it's, it's difficult when you talk about like Adley Rutschmann and some of the other guys in the Orioles system, but I think the Royals might have the best catching uh, depth throughout their system. Because every team I look at, I go, there's someone really good. I mean, Tyler Cropley, when I was in Hagerstown in 2019, was the starting catcher. He's an org catcher for the Royals right now, right? He's sitting in double A, but he's doing it because he's sitting behind people. He's probably on the organizational depth chart behind Hernandez, behind Jensen, and behind um, and behind anyone else that's around him. But he's there just to chew up a couple of games, right? That's the difference between the depth that the Nationals and the Royals have at that position. So, yeah, no, Omar's incredible, and, and he might be the fourth best guy who isn't in the show for the Royals. And by the way, the Royals, if they sign MJ, which which I would prefer if they would, right, uh, they've got a backstop duo that is another four years, probably one of the top backstop duos in Major League Baseball. I'm glad, I'm glad you're resonating what we've been kind of uh, championing is this depth at catcher. It seems like it's very, very real. So that, to hear you actually say that, even down at the lower levels, is is awesome. And then throwing names like Kale and I mean, we've talked about Luca Tresh all over the time. So um, yeah, I think it does seem Luz, like I think he's an infielder at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, hmm. Just when he was in Columbia, uh, defensively, it looked like it wasn't his natural position. But his bat's yeah. too good to not give him a chance. Mm-hmm. So I think. Luca Tresh maybe starts moving to first base, and if he continues to hit well and plays first base well, uh, now all of a sudden maybe Pasquantino or a Prado either moves to a corner outfield, or you can, you know, you're gonna, you're not gonna re-sign all of them. So if yeah. you find a replacement <laughs> for one of them, then then that's something the Royals can do. From one area of depth to another in uh, yeah. in first base. <laughs> well, well it, speaking at oh, minor baseball, you draft a lot of shortstops. And yeah. you draft a lot of catchers because they can yeah. move anywhere, right? If you can yeah. read the ball at shortstop, you can read the ball in center field, second base, third base, right? And if you can catch, you know the game well enough to play corner infield. You can play the game well enough to play corner outfield as well. So that athleticism is certainly something that you can move along. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Yeah, uh, for sure. Well, speaking of athleticism, we got some athletes on the mound that uh, I think everybody was pumped to to see kind of make their way onto that Columbia roster. And that is the prep trio and Ben Kurdina, Frank Mazzucato and Shane Panzini kind of a, a tale of two halves for all three of those guys where all of them kind of transitioned and kind of evolved into different players. If you kind of break it into the first half and second half. So when they got there, I know there was quite a buzz around the Royals farm report, you know, there's quite a buzz around Royals fandom anyways, but what did you see early from this prep trio and then kind of see them evolve throughout the season uh, and, and kind of become, get settled in and, 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 you know, other teams getting tape and film on these guys, get scouting reports on these guys. And how do you, how did you see them kind of evolve as the year went on? Yeah. Kuderno is definitely the most advanced. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone, right? He throws three pitches for strikes. Uh, he locates the fastball anywhere he wants to and has a good swing and miss uh, curveball slider, the changeup he's working on, right? So Kuderna, certainly the most advanced, and that spoke, right? A 338 ERA, what, what do you play in, 17 games? And yeah. even though he couldn't pitch beyond three innings, his first four or five starts, he still averaged over four and a third innings per, per start. So when you're tossing out, you know, one to two innings that he could have continued in his first third of his starts this year, uh, he still averaged about what you want from a pitcher in single A, right? The yep. Royals aren't going to pitch someone beyond seven innings, no matter how old they are at single A. And for the most part, they're not going to pitch someone beyond six innings, right? We saw that this year 
a couple of times, particularly early in the season with Avila, where you went, man, I'd love to see him get a quality start, but they pulled the plug on him in the fifth, or they pulled the plug on him in the sixth, and he said, oh, man, now the bullpen's got to work three tonight, and we played 14 last night. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just what developing a, a team's like. But Kuderna yeah. uh, was really advanced, really above his age. If there's anyone that starts the year in quad cities from that group, it's Kuderna. Uh, Mazzucato, I think if he gains 15 to 20 pounds, is going to look a world of different. Because his first 50 pitches, very controlled. The curveball is the best breaking ball of that group. Uh, I mean, what was it, 89 strikeouts and 65 innings or something to that effect? No. His, right. his K rate was always off the charts and then only got better as, as the season progressed, for sure. Yeah, so when people said, oh, here's a kid who's only played high school ball in a, in a cold climate against no competition, we saw that curveball still tracks in professional baseball. It still tracks against first-round college guys. It still tracks against high school guys, international guys. It doesn't matter. It's a good curveball. Uh, where, where he got in trouble is, and the walk rate shows, right, four or five walks per nine. But, but where it really ends up showing up is when you're behind 2-0, you got to throw the fastball. Mm. And when guys are sitting on the fastball, you're going to get beat a lot. Kuderna had 12 starts before he allowed his first home run. I think Mazzucato's stuff is better than Kuderna's, but he's not locating yet. And, you know, for some guys, that's the story of your career. You're not going to locate. I don't think that's Mazzucato. I just think Mazzucato needs to – grow into his frame a little bit more and then his delivery is going to be more repeatable and he's going to get those strikes for Panzini. He was the most consistent, right? Had about the same ERA every month he pitched. You knew what he was good for. You know, he was going to have a couple good starts, a couple of bad starts. He's growing. You know, this is a kid who pitched zero professional innings before this year. We made a big deal about Mazzucato being from a cold weather climate, but New Jersey is literally what a hundred miles away. And no one ever made that excuse for Panzini. It was always just like, oh, yeah, Panzini's a little bit older than Mazzucato. But, like, same amount of professional innings, same amount of time spent against Southern League guys, right? Like, it wasn't like Panzini was in Florida pitching year-round his entire life. So I think both of those guys are going to show market improvement next year. The last big wave of reinforcements that came in came in after the draft. We're talking – Gavin Cross, Caden Wallace, got a little Levi Usher there at the end of the year. But you also got a guy you mentioned earlier in Lisandro Rodriguez to, to pair with Daniel Vasquez there in the middle infield. Gavin Cross was, I think, by far the best hitter from that draft class once he got to pro ball. Now, he's also playing a little bit lower level than some of those guys got pushed up. Yeah. But when you have Columbia making a playoff push and Quad Cities wasn't, then I'm – I was all for Gavin Cross staying there and go play competitive baseball. Um, carried a lineup. And by the way, I think it's worth noting, not only did you get these reinforcements, but Carter Jensen's numbers, once these reinforcements showed up, skyrocketed. Just having that extra support, the extra depth in the lineup, it didn't just help the team because they were there and being good. It made everybody else on the team better. That, to me in August and September is when the Fireflies became the most fun to watch. And, and, and that's obvious, right? You start winning more, you're more fun to watch. But it wasn't just because of the pitching. It wasn't just because of some of the young guys. You had a formidable team that was complementing each other really well. That That's some of the most fun I had watching minor league baseball all year was those last couple of weeks, months of the Firefly season 
What was it like to watch the team go from struggling to, hey, this team's got some talent, but we're still kind of middling. And then at the very end, like, hey, we have watched this team do a complete 180 from where we were at the beginning of the year. They've added all these reinforcements. Guys who have never met, they're playing well together. They're they're complimenting each other. And this is just fun baseball. Yeah, it was beyond fun. And honestly, none of it happens if you don't sweep Augusta in July with the same team as the first half, right? Uh, no one will talk about what happened exactly. I'm sure there were words in a closed locker room setting. I don't know if it was player-driven, if it was Tony Pena-driven, if it was you know any assistant coach-driven. But the reality is you finish the first half 18-48, something needs to be addressed, right? That team was more talented than 18-48. and 48. And it's proven because a lot of the building blocks were still there in the second half. Uh, so they go out, they take two or three against a Charleston team that beat them by 30 in the first three games of that series to start off the second half. And then they sweep Augusta, they come back home, and Omar Hernandez hits that walk-off single at 12.05 a.m. I think we shared the clip the other day, <laughs> and I watched it for the first time since July 4th. That was a brutal game, man. Three-hour rain delay to start off 4th of July, and then you go and you play in extra innings. Uh, my, my dad visited for the first time uh, for a game day in Columbia, and I made fun of him because when, when I was a kid, growing up in Cleveland, it was you never leave before the last out or you never leave before, you know, the the whistle blows or whatever. And he's got a seven-year-old and he left after the ninth inning. He was like, yeah, I'm not going to stay for fireworks or whatever. And then he heard the fireworks going off as he was in the garage. And I was like, dad, you don't leave before the last pitch is thrown. Um, But yeah, I mean, if if you don't get that sweep, if you don't get that walk-off win, if you don't start that second half nine and one, Gavin Cross is going to Quad Cities because that's the level he should have been playing at. I think Peyton Wallace goes to quad saves as well, just based off what we saw last year. Now, Peyton Wilson, Luca Tresh did come here first last year, but I think both of them had things that they needed to work on that Cross and Wallace did not. You know, Cross ended the year on a 23-game on-base streak, and then they sat in the last game of the season. Uh, So Cross was certainly a master of the level. He was ready to move up. Uh, Javier Vaz. Fun connection with Rivertown. They played on that same LSU Eunice team. They were both 15-round draftees. For Town, it was out of Dallas Baptist in 2021. For Vaz, it's out of Vanderbilt in 2022. But both of them played really well. Vaz ended the season on a 9- or a 10-game hitting streak. And he was hitting nearly 300 in those last 10 games. That was after he started the year in 10 games, hitting about a buck fifty. Once he figured out pro ball, he was rolling as well. So, to see the Royals draft a couple hitters, that, that was really awesome because up top, the Royals are very hitting heavy. Down low, that's not been the case the last two years. The Columbia Fireflies have finished bottom three and hitting each of the last two seasons. So to see a hitting heavy draft was something they really needed. I remember watching Javier Vaz. I'm glad you brought him up. And then I, I know we've been running over a little bit of the time that I told you we'd take here. So uh, let's wrap this up here. Javier Vaz was a guy that I saw in the College World Series last summer, and and immediately it's like that's a Royals player. Like that guy's going to play in the Royal system at some point in his career. And the the reason that a guy like Javier Vaz falls in the draft is is almost one thousand percent because he doesn't hit the ball very hard or far very often. Mm-hmm. One of his first couple games in Columbia, he blasted a home run in the deep right field. I'm like, who the hell is this kid? Like, and what did they do with Javier Vaz? It was so cool to watch him go from, from being a role player at Vanderbilt 
to what was he a 17th, 16th, 15th, 15th round pick like mm-hmm. Rivertown, right? Yeah. Then 15th round pick comes in and immediately makes an impact at the top of the lineup. It was so cool to watch Javier Vaz come in as a little spark plug at the top of the lineup. Um, so I'm glad you brought him up, but I was, I wanted to get um, personally, I've got one more thought I want to get. And then I know Josh has one more thought he wants to get from you. Yeah, but as you, as you think back on the season, who would you, if you had to pick one player, and if you want to do a pitcher and a hitter, you can. Mm-hmm. Who are the players you saw the most growth from as the season went on? So Carter Jensen's really easy offensively, right? A guy who I think was a little bit too big for his shoes to start the season. Uh, he, he, I think he thought it was going to be a lot easier to play professional ball than it was. Uh, and he came out and, and struggled, right? 140 in April. I think it was 160 in May, 200 in June. And then July comes around and he, he looks at, and he's a guy who was pitched too hard, right? There was no one else in our lineup that was worth, you know, throwing seven pitches to an at bat. So they were, they were working him hard for an 18, 19 year old in the second half kid. Um, but his approach at the plate and finally being able to accept going opposite field makes a world of difference. And I'm a guy who firmly believes that we've moved too far in the direction of trying to hit home runs with launch angle and stuff in in the game. And and that if you have guys moving the lineup around, you're going to score five runs an inning way more frequently than if you have five guys trying to hit solo home runs. And the sooner guys realize that at this level, the better baseball is going to be in the majors in five or six years. Uh, So Jensen realizing that as a 19 year old is one, an enormous sign of maturity mid season, but two, I I got to tip my cap to him because he made it more interesting. Why? Because he was setting the table for Gavin Cross and Caden Wallace and Caden Wallace might've led the league in warning track hits this year. He told me multiple times that he was, he was a bit tired, you know, like he wasn't hurt, but he had been playing since February. So you're you're going to be fatigued. I think next year you're going to you're going to watch the ball jump off his bat in April May. I really do. One more one more thing from me because Josh's question needs to be the final question because it's a good one. Okay. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of the rules they implemented in minor league baseball this year. Totally forgot to add, to to mention that on the list I sent you, but we've got to talk about that just really quick. Did they 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 banned the shift in Carolina League, right? Yeah, it was no more than – it wasn't the, the little square I, thing second yeah. that was just Florida State League, but in the Carolina League it was you know two guys on either side of second. So talk uh, about, really quick, the banning of the shift and the pitch clock. Sell Major League Baseball fans, hey, this is going to be a good thing long term. You're going to like it. So the shift, I'll be honest, it's not super noticeable because you still have guys lining up very close to second base. So you still can say it's a three-man pull shift. Your shortstop's not playing – almost halfway between second and third. So it's not a crazy difference. Um, you just don't have some guy playing in shallow right field, which allows guys like Jensen or Cross or pull heavy hitters to maybe get a couple more singles. Um, the pitch clock, I cannot sell highly enough. Last year, the Columbia Fireflies were the worst team in anywhere beneath AA in time of game. We averaged over three and a half hours. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, it's not cutting out intense moments it's not cutting out more pitches it's cutting out a guy walking around the pitcher's mount between every single pitch it's cutting out some dude adjusting his batting gloves between every pitch and it's cutting out where you feel is not in three to two games where you feel is in 19 to three games which trust me we had a couple of this year right 
And when those last three innings go super long because guys are taking their time, uh, it's brutal to watch. And that's where you lose casual fans, right? I go to three games a year if I'm like an average fan in in A-ball and major league ball. That's the case. And if one of those three games every year is a four-hour game where it's a blowout, maybe I'm not going to game two or three next year. So I think this really helps the casual fan go to those three games every single year. And I think it helps sell people with younger kids a little bit better because the difference between our average game time last year being three and a half hours and this year being two and a uh, two and a half, two thirty-five, I think was where it ended um, is the difference between my seven-year-old brother being able to sit through the game and my seven-year-old brother starting to get edgy in the seventh or eighth inning. (laughs) Right. And as a parent, that makes a huge difference, right? You know, like I'm not a parent yet, but, having two younger brothers has allowed me to see the vantage point of, okay, well, tomorrow's going to be school. And you know, like, Oh, they're starting to act up. Are they going to embarrass me in front of this group of people? Right. So this helps the casual fan a ton. Make those, uh, those 12 inning uh, marathons for your dad a little bit easier to swallow than two. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the last question I wanted to get you out of here on, you, we've talked a lot of great moments that happened in the Columbia season. They did provide the only uh, playoff push in this organization, both you know major league and down. They were the only ones that really got kept it interesting there till the end. What was the best moment, your favorite moment that you covered this year for the Columbia Fireflies? I remember being so amped after that opening day three-run walk-off home run. I mean, everyone uh, in Columbia media on media day was asking him, about being compared to Carlos Beltran and (laughs) everyone was talking about this kid being amazing and I mean we didn't see it the entire year the talent is certainly there right we talked about that but you know on opening day for that to happen that never happens right um I think the six game winning streak in Augusta was really fun to watch Mm. Uh, it was the first time the Fireflies had swept one of these six game series and it was the first series we won in 2022, right? It took until July for us to win a series. So to win it with a sweep against a team that we play 30 times a year, that's really fun to watch. And we'll open up the year against them next year because we open up against them every single year. So, um, you know, that type of thing where you can talk about that. uh, First, it was the 2016 no-hitter that the Fireflies threw. Then you talk about the three-run walk-off home run from Eric Pena, right? That's what creates these minor league rivalries. It doesn't matter if it's a different group of people every year. That type of legend lore lives on. So I think I got to side with Eric Pena's three-run walk-off home run. Love it. Hard to, hard to argue that. Right. It is. I was. I remember watching that game, and I think, if I remember correctly, Eric Pena had struck out a couple times. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. Then he cranks a walk-off home run. I was like, yeah, screw it. It's going to be a great year. I think all um, three of the hosts in here were like, we group texted each other at the same time trying to break news on the other ones. It's like, you guys aren't worth watching, were you? No, Eric Payne, you just did a thing. Yeah, I think it was it was 0 for 3. In the seventh inning, he hit the single that tied the game. Mm-hmm. And then he comes up in extras and he blasts the three-run home run to win it. So, yeah, no, he was he was fun to watch. If nothing else, during batting practice, watching him learn every single day. He, he's a sponge. He, he does learn a lot. And sometimes, you know, he's 19. Again, how well is a freshman going to play in a big conference You know, against seniors, right? Yep. If you were to say he's got to play against Kumar Rocker, right? Well, what are you going to get on an average result in college? Well, that's what you're getting from these 19-year-olds. So 
let's see what he's got next year before we write him off basically that's awesome john i really appreciate your time tonight i we went way over the allotted time that i told you we were going to take i appreciate your generosity been a great interview the fireflies like i said the last two months of fireflies baseball were some of the most fun i have had watching baseball all summer and of course you are the voice of the Columbia Fireflies, so I'm used to hearing all the good things coming through through the voice. So it's good to put a face with the voice as well, like you said. So thanks yeah, for joining be, us. Going to Go be ahead. an award-winning broadcaster next time we see him. We see him up there with the 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 what is it the the get to broadcaster of the year. Yep. Ho- hopefully, fingers crossed, right? Yeah. But no, thanks so much for having me, guys. Seriously, anytime you want to talk shop, I'm I'm here for it. This is the type of thing I live for. So. Much appreciated, man. Have a great night. Yep, you too. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but the NFL action is in full swing here at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. That's right, we're talking touchdowns, we're talking big plays, and even bigger payout wins. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. Listen, if that's not enough, DraftKings got you covered. Everyone can boost their winnings with DraftKings' stepped-up same-game parlays. Right now, for every leg that you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. That's right. I paused a little bit because I had to make sure that was true. Right now, for every leg that you add, you can boost your winnings up to 100%. With bigger payouts than ever, why would you bet on football anywhere else? To make things even sweeter, you can throw down on stepped-up same-game parlays once per game day, All season long. That's right. All season long. Here's what you got to do. You got to go to DraftKings Sportsbook and download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Now, use promo code KCSN to get $200 in free bets if your team wins when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code KCSN only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. You can see the show notes for more details. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, big thanks to John Kosas there for joining us out of Columbia, South Carolina. I enjoyed the hell out of watching the Fireflies the last couple months. It was by far the best stretch of minor league baseball that the Royals had all year. So really good to have him on, get his thoughts on the on the Columbia season. Josh, really quick, before we wrap it up tonight, I want you to go over – I didn't get to listen to it, but J.J. Piccolo joined the guys at the Kansas City Star – uh, for a quick live stream today. I want you to quickly rehash some some of the notes you you went you took down from the interview. We're going to opine about what happened and then we will come right back um, and, and wrap this up. So go ahead and, and rehash kind of what JJ said on his media availability today. Yeah, so I took notes. This isn't any chronological order, but I did I, as I was looking at my notes afterwards, these are kind of the ones that jumped out to me. First one and he kind of sounded like Drew Waters is now thought to be part of that core lineup with Bobby Witt Jr., MJ Melendez, Vinny Pasquantino, and Nick Prado. Um, so I was interested. It was very interesting to me that they're already kind of treating Drew Waters like that. Um, that no, <laughs> no, there's plenty. Um, he also mentioned that uh, Zach Greinke leaving at the end of the year's contract's up. So they might need to add a starting pitcher, maybe two. We'll have to see that goes. Um, he was asked about the pitching development and how that's kind of gone in the minor leagues, more stressed about it. Um, he mentioned that 2019 and 2021 were major jumps in pitching development within this organization. And 
he kind of looks towards that as being a, uh, a help of seeing what went right in those years to get us out of these humps for this year. We've talked about it multiple times that, you know, this season's not going over very well in the minor leagues, especially if, as far as pitching development goes. Um, said that their main focus is going to be mostly on throwing strikes, believe it or not, and uh, especially the first strike, first pitch strike. And he also mentioned keeping it and simplifying it more so in the lower levels. So in the Columbias, in the Quad Cities, they're going to try to focus less on the game plan part and just pitch development and and go from there uh, as far as the lower levels. Um, he did praise Paul Gibson, said he was doing a great job there in the uh, – he's the senior director of pitching development. Is that correct? Yep. Is that the title? Um, and kind of along the lines of, uh, you know, these coaches and stuff, he did say that firing Terry Bradshaw was a new experience for J.J. Makes sense. Uh, first year as a GM, but it was the first firing he'd ever been part of apparently. Um, the, I guess the first question right out of the gate – Blair asked him about the expectations coming into the season, where he fares with uh, where they think they are currently with the expectations that were set preseason. He said they weren't where they want to be, which is interesting considering, considering what Dayton Moore said a few days ago. Um, very interesting this year to hear him talk about that. Um, the other interesting thing is Prado being optioned. Um, he said it was more of a roster crunch thing with all the Barris needing at-bats and uh, more opportunities for him and uh, that being a crunch sending more Prado down than it was about, you know, his play on the field. Uh, interesting little timeline that he kind of gave. Uh, we can get into that if we need to, but it was a roster crunch that kind of got uh, Prado sent down more so than his performance. Um, I guess those are the main points. What do you, what do you think about uh, any and all of those? I'm going to try not to be disrespectful. Yeah, I, I had my way, my way. I had my mm-hmm. my thoughts on Dayton Moore earlier. This mm-hmm. is separate. This what I'm about to say has nothing to do with anything Dayton Moore said about that athletic article. This is a new thought based on what happened today. And again, I, I don't want this to come off as me being disrespectful. But did you happen to see the 60 Minutes interview with Joe Biden the other night? <laughs> no, I don't pay attention to, to okay. government and politics. I just saw I just saw a clip. Here's here's what I got out of this. They asked Joe Biden on 60 Minutes, and they said, if China invades Taiwan, will the U.S. intervene? He said, yes, absolutely. So if China invades Taiwan, we will send U.S. troops, men and women, to Taiwan to defend Taiwan. Joe Biden said, yes, absolutely. And in the interview, they had to, like, edit out part of it and say a White House advisor told us that that is not official U.S. policy. <laughs> so clearly, whoever's really calling the shots. Yeah, who's Joe Biden in that situation? <laughs> well, Dayton Moore is clearly Joe Biden, Okay, in my opinion. Because what Dayton Moore said is just rainbows and flowers and unicorns, and it's all yeah. swell. And it's like what J.J. Piccolo said is like the White House – chief of staff behind like the behind the scenes coming in like that's not our official policy jackass <laughs> like, that's, see i that's thought it's not that's not what we really think about what's going on it's like <laughs> what where because i'm it's, dayton moore got roasted for that right yeah absolutely dude, roasted for that yes it's like it's almost like they've already pushed dayton moore out the door 
and then this media availability came up, and he just went out there and started talking. And uh-huh. JJ Piccolo had to come out today and do damage control uh, because yeah. the the senile old prick that they had to kick out is now <laughs> like what on earth? Okay. See, I kind of had the same thoughts along the same lines there at the end. It sounded like Dayton Moore was the spin zone guy. He was the one spinning it and be like, actually, everything's fine. As to like, he's the guy that's potentially getting pushed out the door here like i'm actually leaving it in the best spot it's ever been and and piccolo's like no obviously things are going poorly and this is why we're going to try to fix it so it's the it's the lame duck versus the new the new guy who's trying to take the job not necessarily trying to take the job but he's still trying to earn his title for next year in my opinion so it feels like dayton's already like already either going for his next job, he's interviewing for his next job currently by spin zoning the negativity into fairies and rainbows. Whereas Piccolo's like, okay, no, this is obviously we, these guys we think are doing okay. We put them in these positions. We think they're doing all right, but things are still not going well. That's, that's what I heard. Earth to Dayton. Earth to Dayton. (laughs) Maybe Earth to John Sherman. The shit is not going well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um that was probably the most interesting part to me is is that dynamic is trying to read the read between the lines between those two guys another thing that i was not a fan of was listening to jj piccolo talk about pitching development yeah. um the idea that we're going to try to simplify things like that is almost something you say as a hedge or a knock against the kids already in your system like this is their fault. They're not picking up on it. We're trying to do too much. So we're going to dumb it down for them and go back to square one. It's like, "Mm, I don't know if I like the way that sounds. I don't know if I like the way that that just as someone who tries to coach pitching at a very amateur level, a very amateur level compared to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I just don't like the verbiage that came out of his mouth. Maybe it's coach speak. Maybe it's nothing to worry about. But I really don't like that. We're just going to try to throw strikes, guys. What are we, nine? Like, no, that's not how you teach pitching in 2022. Just throw it over the plate. Come on, boys. Don't worry about a game plan. Don't worry about anybody else. Just do you. Not a fan of that. But we'll see. That kind of, there was some of those tidbits in that athletic article. There was, it was treading on some of those things, which is, is not nothing for sure. He did talk about maybe a little bit more focus on like pitch design, which is good. We need more pitch design, and then and then you go to the game plan. Or you work in tidbits of that game plan in matchup scenarios. So that I was a little bit encouraged by, but I understand what you're saying. It's It, it did not bounce off your ears, especially if you had just come out saying that there's a lot of falsehoods in that, not the, the athletic article. And then Piccolo comes in and is like, basically adds adds a little bit of credibility to some of the things that they were saying in that. I don't mean to be the critical spirit Dayton Moore's talking about because this is going to sound hypercritical. And again, I promise I'm not trying to be. I just want our listeners to know the truth about this. The way that J.J. Piccolo was talking, and again, I like the guy. I really like him as a person and the GM. I think if you were just giving him control of the roster and just having him play fantasy baseball on a spreadsheet, putting putting names in a a lineup, I I like the way he handles that. But the way he's talking about pitch design, dude, I do pitch design with high school kids. Yeah. Pitch design is not hard. Pitch design is a very basic concept where, give an example, 
I had a kid who was throwing a curveball and it didn't match what his fastball was doing. It was just, there was too much separation. I said, Hey, we need to try to make your breaking ball a little bit differently, make it move a little bit differently, throw it a little bit harder because I don't think it's pairing well with your fastball. I don't like the way it moves. I, I think there's a better pitch for you. You can do pitch design, like by drawing a black circle, like a line around a baseball in the middle of it and then watching the way it spins and then regripping it. Like pitch design isn't some like super advanced. Now it can be, you yeah. can get really down into the weeds, put an edgertronic on it, follow all of the data, understand the spin efficiency, the vertical axes and the horizontal axes, exactly how the ball is spinning, which way it's going to move and how it tunnels with your fastball. You can, but basic pitch design is easy. There, there's not a lot to it. And then the way the Royals talk about it, it sounds a lot like they're not even attempting to help guys throw different pitches and in different scenarios and, and with different grips. And it's like, it's just a little concerning. It's like, I don't think they're that archaic. I don't think they're that far behind, but the way they talk about it, it's like, well, you should really be careful with like how you word this because mm. it sounds really archaic. Like it sounds really stone age, even though I don't think they are. Like I'm not yeah. under the impression that the Royals don't have some some concepts of this. And I and I talked to a guy last year, a kid who was no longer in the system. I said, "Hey, this this pitch you're throwing is is different. It's definitely different than what you used to throw." And he said, "Yeah, one of my one of one of the coaches um, recommended this new grip to me. So it's not like they're not doing something. And I and I yeah. truly don't believe that they're that old school. But it's like." The way you talk about this, like it shouldn't sound like a totally foreign language coming out of your mouth. And sometimes it does. And it just makes my skin crawl a little bit. They did praise Paul Gibson for the fact that he is great with the technology that is pushing the R&D and also good at interpreting the data from it, apparently. So that's encouraging. It also goes against what the athletic article at least was saying where they were at one point, not necessarily where they currently are. Paul Gibson's only been the, the senior director of pitching development for a year. So it's hard to, hard to say how much of an influence he has on things at the moment. But if you do want to draw a conclusion about what has happened under his tenure, it ain't been good. So I hope that that certainly improves. Um, a lot of people in my replies when I said something about waters being in this core, they want more love for Michael Massey, period. And he didn't – JJ didn't say that Massey was not part of the core, but he just didn't. I mean, he said it was strapped for time anyway, so he was just potentially just running through names. Maybe Massey is considered. But with with that consideration, along with the Prado getting optioned, I said it last week that Prado might be the guy that is used to go get some more of this starting pitching that is needed. And this roster crunch sending him down for Oliveris – at bats kind of only re reinforces that to me it seems like he might be the guy that would be would be pushed out if the roster was crunched and therefore could be the most expendable and the most valuable in a trade maybe well done no yeah. i don't disagree with anything you just said final thoughts tonight joshua final thoughts what did i say the final thoughts had to be i said they had to be tv shows that are not talked about enough not talked about enough tv shows go uh, only murders in the building. Uh, I think it's been an Emmy consideration for the last two years, but I mean, I've heard it was okay. We're pretty good. We started it maybe two weeks ago. Awesome show. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. 
potentially the most unlikely trio uh, if you ever had to put them together might be the most unlikely but it's awesome uh, it's like a really funny comedic whodunit murder uh, thing kind of based if you're a serial the podcast fan it's kind of like that um, it's kind of centered around that stuff but it's awesome on Hulu only uh, they just uh, I think they just released and we finished season two last night so uh, can't recommend that show enough both me and the wife it's kind of hard find hard to find shows that both of us get into or that one of us just being along for the ride generally both of us enjoy this one so highly recommend it interesting i um along similar lines have been my wife and i just finished season three of the sinner mm. it is the most incredible show so my big thing my favorite thing that of a, of a good movie for me personally is a plot twist like mm-hmm. i hate when i can see the end coming from a mile away so like romantic comedies where some people like the the, the good feeling ending but it's the same every time some people like that it's fine i mm-hmm. love an ending that i can't see coming yeah and this show on netflix called the sinner every episode has a new good twist that is legitimate and realistic and you're like oh my god i can't figure out where they're going with this Mm. season one the opening scene of season one this woman is sitting (laughs) on a beach with her with her kid and her husband and she's she hears music playing on the beach and she picks up a knife she walks over and stabs the guy playing the music she just stabs him to death she's like in a trance she doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't even know what she's doing and then the whole season unfolds about why she stabbed this guy to death, what happened to her, what is going on, how did she get into a trance. But the center, the show, is really about the detective. So the detective yeah. has his whole yep has his own vices. So while he is uncovering the murder and uncovering what is going on, you're learning about his sins and his vices along the way. It is nuts. We just finished season three where they bring in uh, the Ubermensch, which uh, is Nietzsche, who is yep. the, the guy that Hitler based a lot of his moral justifications around and this idea of the Ubermensch. It is fascinating. It is the one of the three or four best shows I've ever seen, period. And I've, and I've rarely met people who have seen it. So it's called The Sinner. It's on Netflix. It is, season one it is, is uh, Mrs. Timberlake, Jessica Biel, Biel. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And the guy who looks like Jon Snow. <laughs> what is his name? Um, <laughs> I've only seen him in the center, but he just, it I seems like he is Jon Snow to me. Yeah, Jon Snow. I know who you're talking about. The center, yeah. Very <laughs> similar shows in that it's a, like a murder-based uh, show with lots of twists and turns. Very different tones. <laughs> <laughs> I may need to check yours out there. I'm a big fan yeah. of like that. So it's pretty lighthearted, but uh yeah, I, I like both of both of we started about talking. We watched the first two seasons of the center. We talked about picking up the third one here with uh I mean spooky Halloween stuff's kind of coming up. We'd like to get some of those under our belts. So season. Haunting of Hill House, and then uh there was another season of it, also very good on Netflix if you're looking for something like that. Very twisty as well outstanding josh and i are going to be at the royals game i don't know when you guys are going to hear this we're going to be at the royals game on wednesday night so when we bought our tickets we went to ticketsforless.com because ticketsforless.com is the only place you should be buying tickets to royals games this year use use code kcsn22 to get 22 percent off your tickets this year kcsn22 to get 22 percent off your royals tickets uh it's the last homestand so we're going out wednesday night 
if you listen to this before Wednesday night, come out and meet us. We're going to be eating the Reese's peanut butter barbecue cup sandwiches because they're a delicious abomination and I can't wait to have another one. So we will see you guys on Wednesday. If it's not Wednesday and you listen to this, we'll see you guys again sometime soon next year. We'll do another, another hangout. So we appreciate you guys for listening. Thanks to KCSE drum farm tickets for less draft Kings go Royals. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.